Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. And what is that simple choice? What is the solution to climate change? Uh, What is the solution to deforestation and habitat destruction, Uh, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, and human disease? We would love to have the answer to all of those questions. But the truth is, Intelligent people, well-meaning people disagree. Not everybody is going to uh, come together and uh, say, okay, here's the answer. We know what we feel here at Jane Unchained. We feel transitioning to a plant-based diet um, is the way to go. Uh, But that's not the only solution. It doesn't mean that other solutions uh, are not just as effective or also effective. So here we are live today on Jane Unchained with an incredible guest, Carter Dillard, a famed attorney. We could spend an entire hour talking about all of his credentials, but he is the founder of a new organization, relatively new called Having Kids. And he is going to lay out a thesis of one way that we could really, really save our planet because we're at a finite planet, we have finite resources, we're consuming them at an alarming rate, we are barreling toward an ecological apocalypse and we have to adapt. Carter, take it away. Thanks, Jane. I I certainly agree with everything you said and I think the the thing to remember is that um, every solution should be on the table and should be implemented because at this point, I don't think we can entertain um, individualized solutions. It really takes um, a holistic approach. Um, And so I do want to just say initially, I am appearing in my individual capacity, uh, not as uh, affiliated for this interview with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Um, But I am appearing because of some research and publishing that I did on the subject matter. Um, and the solution that, that I've researched uh, and have published in peer-reviewed journals with several other researchers involves rethinking the way we plan our families. Um, and the change that, that we have uh, discovered, I think, that would be most consistent with the human right to have children if you properly interpreted that right. Um, the, the laws policies and family planning systems would change drastically and they would change from what what is now a focus really on fulfilling what parents want they may want a boy they may want a girl they may want four children they may want uh, children for lots of reasons uh, including uh, assistance in agriculture or because they want to make their parents happy but essentially our systems try to fulfill uh, that parental desire. And, and our change, we think, to make systems 
consistent with human rights and animal protection, the change instead would be focused on what future children need. So we would imagine what every future child needs, minimum things like what the Children's Rights Convention, the UN Children's Rights Convention guarantees, all the way up to things that are more aspirational, like a fair start in life, uh, a start where we would even the playing field for children, uh, a start where African-American children don't start with a tenth of the familial wealth that white families in America's have, America have. If you can imagine refocusing family planning on what future children need, and you made it cooperative to achieve that, you would have the greatest impact on things like the climate crisis, inequity, child poverty, and I think our degrading systems of human rights and democracy. So changing from a focus on what parents want to a focus on what future children need would achieve all of these things, and I think bring us into compliance with human rights requirements. I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if we're narcissistic about it and say, well, I want to have five children and, uh, you know, I'm wealthy, therefore, and I'm not talking about myself, I have no children, by the way, uh, just didn't have that gene. I I more have maternal instincts toward uh, animals, and that is the truth. Uh, And so there you go. But let's say I'm an upper middle class person, say, you know, I can afford to have five children, I'm going to have five children. And uh, if I can take care of them, that's my business. Well, the impact of those five kids on the planet um, is enormous. So it's really a use of resources. And you're saying, instead of thinking about your desire to have five people who look like you and bring them into the world, think about um, what the resources that will use up and how that will negatively affect other children in the future with drought, climate change, um, mass migration due to climate change, uh, starvation. We've got a whole issue. But I, I want to uh, challenge you a little bit and bring in some breaking news, uh, some incredible breaking news. We got it right here. McDonald's is going to introduce McPlant meat-free options next year. Now, as a vegan animal rights organization, we have been working, as many other organizations, PETA, Mercy for Animals, uh, LDF, all these organizations for years to try to get the world's most iconic fast food giant to embrace fast food Mm -hmm. and uh, to embrace plant-based, rather. And um, we were very heartened when they test marketed uh, a plant-based burger in Canada um, not so long ago, but then they stopped the test and we were all kind of like, wah, wah, wah. Now, get this. They are going to introduce their own vegan burger, McPlant. To me, this is almost like the tipping point for our movement. So first of all, I want to ask you about how that weighs versus not having as many children but what is your reaction as somebody who has fought in courts of law in the nation's top universities, the world's top universities for animal rights? Uh, what is your reaction to the McPlant coming online, coming aboard? I think, yeah, I think it's amazing. I mean, it's it's wonderful news. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've sped past McDonald's looking for Burger King or somewhere that would have a vegan option. And, and honestly, the availability of vegan options places a huge debt in factory farming, in climate emissions, 
Um, and it, it introduces people to the idea that eating food should be done thoughtfully in terms of the impact it has. You don't want to uh, cause needless suffering uh, by making a dietary choice that really um, only because you were, didn't have another option. So I think this is something that I, I'm glad it happened. I wish it had happened long ago, but I agree with you. Uh, it is a, a watershed moment. So getting back to your theme about perhaps the best way, in your opinion, to combat climate change is to really focus on family planning, reduce the number of kids per family. Um, what would you say to those who would argue Actually, the Earth could sustain a lot more people if we weren't eating animals. We're only 7.8 billion humans, and we are forcibly creating, forcibly impregnating 70 billion land animals every year who eat, oh gosh, estimates are a third, a half of all crops produced, uh, and they don't produce that much food. So that that inefficient food system, if it were eliminated, would allow for uh, plenty of other um, options like people who do want to have large families because the resources that that large family would use would be diminished if they were plant-based. And the fact that the animal agriculture industry would be gone, uh, Mm -hmm. land would be reforested, we could start bringing back the temperature to where it was a couple of hundred years ago, uh, that would essentially solve the problem. I, I think that it's neither, it's never going to be one or the other. I mean, I, I choose uh, not to eat animal products because I'm trying to be empathetic and uh, uh, not cause that suffering to uh, non-humans. I think a choice to have smaller, sustainable families, especially where you're sharing resources to give every kid a fair start, is also being empathetic. You're caring about the children that would be impacted. And you're also caring about impacts on the planet that going vegan wouldn't solve. So things like demands for particular energy uses that may not be impacted by diet um, and other impacts. There was a study done 2017 by Lund University in Sweden that found that having one child fewer than you would otherwise have had a 20 times carbon uh, mitigation impact over the long term as any other personal lifestyle choice. So uh, I'll, I'll go back to what I started the, the interview with, which is I think all of these options have to be addressed in a critical situation like this. Um, and if the UN were taking its job seriously, they would embrace family planning systems that really try to invest in children um, and, and not the current system, which really under the current uh, family planning system, our world population could go Uh, to 9 or 11 billion, but in theory, it could go up to 12, 13, and 14. And even with significant dietary changes by a significant percentage of the population, we would wipe out wildlife, exacerbate the climate crisis, and every other uh, crisis that we're experiencing right now, we would multiply. So I I just think there's no way to avoid this particular policy reform. Well, interesting. Uh 68% of all wildlife has already been wiped out. And we are on track to wipe out virtually all wildlife vertebrates in six short years if we continue on this trajectory. So we do have to do something. They're not mutually exclusive. Going plant-based and family planning would be a great one-two punch solution 
that would certainly be more effective than the current obsession with fossil fuels, which is really um, almost undermining uh, to a large degree the real solutions. Can you address that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think, well, one thing we've dealing with is uh, there's a litigation actually that the Animal Legal Defense Fund is engaged in challenging the U.S.'s uh, failure to mitigate the climate crisis through policies and in some cases exacerbate it. Um, and what we find really is that our obsession with fossil fuels runs well into our systems of governance to the level of corruption. And I think we saw that uh, clearly um, with recent administrations, policies, promoting fossil fuel use despite um, the impacts. I think um, there are ways to marry uh, reforms in family planning, reforms in dietary and agricultural policies with reforms in energy use. Um, and so for example, uh, a lot of the divestment, uh, great success with divestment campaigns, trying to move investors away from fossil fuel, uh, uh, options, those techniques are migrating into promoting plant-based uh, as an alternative to animal agriculture. So I think you'll see a big uptick in the next five, five or 10 years, uh, or even shorter, three to five years of groups that are pushing for investors to get out of animal ag. And what they're doing is they're taking a lesson from what we've learned from the great successes in stop the pipeline movements and fossil fuel sector. Uh, yeah, I hope you're right, because we don't have 10 years or even 15 years, according to some critics. Uh, we at Jane Unchained did a documentary called Countdown to Year Zero, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. And it profiles the work of Dr. Silas Rao, who says, at this rate, we're going to wipe out all wildlife vertebrates by 2026. And that is going to trigger an ecological collapse. That's why when I saw the news that McDonald's is finally, I think it's almost a tipping point moment yeah. because they were very resistant. Right. And we've gone through so many things as we're both in the vegan movement for many years. Uh, when some of these fast food giants first came out with a vegan burger, it seemed like they purposely made it taste bad so they could, and, right. then they, and then they didn't put it on the menu. So then they said, well, it doesn't sell. Well, it tastes bad and you didn't put it on the menu. You, it's offered, but you can't see it on the board. Uh, we all went through all those shenanigans. And then um, I think the big breakthrough was the Beyond Meat IPO, which was the most successful initial public offering uh, since, uh, well, the 2008 financial crisis, when it came out, that's what everybody was talking about. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, wow, because what does our society value making money? So now that we're hitting this uh, huge milestone with the announcement that McDonald's, the iconic fast food giant, is coming out with its own vegan burger, McPlant, um, I see that as a major societal shift. Um, but what you're saying is don't just focus on that, also focus on family planning. So let me ask you some controversial questions because this is a very, very, very sensitive topic. Um, just as people, you know, proclaim their right, for example, to eat animals, and we would say you have the might to eat animals, but you don't really have the right, a moral right. I mean, it's not just a personal choice. It's 
a leading cause of climate change, habitat destruction, deforestation, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, human disease. One out of every four people prior to COVID were dying of heart disease that's connected to high cholesterol from animal products. So uh, by the same token, you're making that point with having a lot of kids. Uh, But a lot of people will say, how dare you? How dare you tell me how many kids to have? What is your response to that? Yeah, I mean, I would. I heard the exact same arguments when it came to the promotion of plant-based diets 20 and 30 years ago, that what I eat is none of your business. But if uh, our children are going to share the future and what people are eating is destroying that future, it is my business if I care about protecting my and other people's children. Uh, the same arguments apply to poor family planning. Growth that is unsustainable is a threat to all of our futures. Uh, and so while the act of not having a child, terminating a pregnancy or using contraception is something that's personal or you maintain personal autonomy, the act of creating another person is never autonomous. It's never really something that's per- personal. It's interpersonal in nature. And it doesn't mean there's not a right to have children. But much the way that there's a right to speak freely, there are guidelines for how to apply that right. And the problem is that governments have never applied those guidelines because governments make a lot of money on population growth. It's instant gross domestic product. Um, It's instant consumers, cheap workers in the future, taxpayers. So they saw growth as as, uh, going forever. And now with the climate and other crises, we're, we and future generations will pay the price of that growth. So what is obviously behavior, as you said, that impacts other people has to come with guidelines. And what we're yeah, suggesting. Yep. One of the things that uh, people, I was going to bring this up, but uh, some of the people watching are asking, didn't China do this a few years ago, tell people to have one child? And um, does that work? Um, that is uh, perhaps the most I think significant question we could talk about, Hey, it's better for the environment for us to reduce uh, the population growth, the level of growth. I mean, I remember reading once that more the the world has at least twice as many people on it as when I was in high school, at least, at least. And that the growth that has occurred in the last century is exponentially larger than the growth of the human species since the the dawn of time. In other words, that we are accelerating the population growth to a point of um, crisis that has never been experienced in the history of humankind. So that it's not just, hey, family planning, it's family planning in this era. So we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to stay live on Facebook. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Are you ready for provocative discussions with some of today's most powerful movers and shakers? Tune in to The Art of Significance, featuring Dan Clark, the modern-day Napoleon Hill, who interviews the wealthiest, most successful celebrities and business leaders on the planet who are using their influence to change the world. From authors to entertainers, sports figures, educators to military leaders, Dan covers multiple topics. Tune in every Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influence channel get unchained tune in every monday for jane unchained on the voice america influencers channel featuring nationally recognized best-selling author tv journalist and social media influencer jane velez mitchell this program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution it all starts on your plate if you want to revolutionize your life get happier more energized then discover the secret Tune in to Jane Unchained Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, we're here with the extraordinary Carter Dillard, a famed attorney, but he is really uh, coming to us today in the role of the founder of Having Children or Having Kids, sorry, uh, your organization. We do have callers. Keep popping them up. Sarah, on hold. What is your question or thought, Sarah? Hey, Jane. Oh, my gosh, Carter. I love this topic because I personally chose not to push babies out of my body, human babies. But I do have, and I have adopted many companion animals, um, and I'm down to one beagle now, and he's vegan, which is great. But I really want to ask you, what is your thought? A lot of people are having vegan babies now. What are your thoughts on that? Good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what you're, I think to have children and try to promote empathy in those children. Uh, yeah, Okay. Uh, can you can you uh, disconnect the caller, please? Thank you, Voice America. Appreciate it. Go ahead, Carter. I think what she's saying is, if yeah. you have a vegan baby, does that mean that the baby is not using as many resources? Therefore, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's okay to have kids. I mean, that's the point of of having kids. Your organization is: can we find a way so that people can choose to have children in a way that protects their future through cooperative and sustainable? models. Uh, and the, the, uh, I know plenty of vegans that really were on the fence about whether they wanted to have children or not because of the impact. And I think our main thesis is that's not fair. They should have never been in a position about really worrying whether they should have one or two children because other people 
were uh, planning unsustainably because other people had massive families. That's not fair. It was up to our systems of governance to avoid that kind of uh, unfairness where one person's choices impact another person's choices. So I, I do think uh, having kids promotes this concept of smaller and equitable families. So it does countenance the idea of having children as a good thing. And in fact, if you're raising your children vegan, you want to promote empathy in them so that they care about other creatures. That's a good thing. Um, our only point is that if you do it in isolation, if you ignore uh, the policy aspects so that other people might continue to have massive unsustainable families uh, or massive families that consume so much, and I'll, this gets to your point, Jane, about where the families are happening, that it's not going to, to help your child. You can't have your child and protect your child in isolation uh, if other people are having massive families um, and driving inequity and driving population growth and driving the climate crisis. We have to do this cooperatively. Uh, so so where, where are the populations growing the most quickly, human populations? And what about that, the China policy that we had heard about that so many people found very offensive? Um, yeah years ago yeah so i think that uh, i'll say three things about that one is there's often the confusion between fertility rates and population growth so fertility rates are the number of children that we're having and then population growth number of people in a particular region and the two are connected but not the same thing there is falling fertility um, around the world several places are uh, there are several places that are a negative fertility rate uh, several places that are um, still relatively high fertility where the average woman has between five and six children uh, in her lifetime. On, uh, across the globe, the world population will, despite reduced fertility rates, world population will continue to grow uh, almost, I think, regardless of what we do um, by two to three billion um, uh, in the years to come. The real question is where we bend Wait, the curve. Where, where, what countries are... And, and, and a lot of that growth will occur in places like India, mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the Middle East, Pakistan. Egypt is now uh, specifically considering um, mandatory policies that would limit uh, family sizes. Um, so a lot of the growth is there, but it's, it's vital to recognize that a lot of the environmental impact occurs in places that are even in negative fertility. Uh, so um, Europe, the United States, which is a negative, it's usually 2.1, 2.3 uh, children per woman. Even though we're having fewer children and the population growth is not slated to occur here, we are oftentimes having four times the environmental impact mm -hmm. of other regions of the world, of places that are consuming less. And I can assure you that's the case when it comes to meat consumption and animal product consumption. The real, the real situation that I think people don't realize is that while all of this is going on, uh, there is a lot of money flowing into policies that are trying to reverse the lower fertility rates. If you just Google the term baby bust, you'll see every major news network decrying the fact that women are having fewer children because that may mean slower economic growth. And there are policies moving into the fore that will try to reverse those uh, falling fertility rates here. 
Um, and I think that's where the question arises. What do we want our policies to be? Because if they succeed, uh, the impact on animals through consumption and through the elimination of wildlife will, uh, will accelerate. So let me, uh, I remember several, well, quite a few years ago now, I wrote a book called Addict Nation. Uh, because I'm a recovering alcoholic with 25 years of sobriety, and I started to see a dictogenic uh, cultural phenomenon, not to use a bunch of words with a lot of syllables, but there is this phrase, dictogenic. And when I saw that, I was struck by it, and I looked into it, and that is where things are done in an addictive way. And then I started looking at our culture and wrote a book. Basically, each chapter was our culture addicted to something else. So it was addicted to uh, fast food, addicted to uh, incarceration, uh, addicted to procreation was a uh, chapter. And in researching that, uh, what struck me was that in order to reduce uh, the average family size, the first thing that has to occur is for women in whatever region that's happening to become educated. Because if they're not educated, they feel that that is really almost their their option. This was what I was reading. I shouldn't speak for an entire group of billions of people, obviously. And uh, every, every individual has their individual choices. But if, if you're looking at a sweeping picture, the what I read, uh, and studied to, to create that chapter said that the more educated women are, the more likely they are to want to pursue careers and therefore put off child rearing. Um, and that will um, diminish their desire for large families. So can you address that? Because essentially the, the what I came away with is you can't just tell people, hey, cut back on the kids. Right. It's an entire it's an entire um sort of cycle of uh, um, many, many other issues, but particularly education and women's liberation. If women do not have the right to do uh, certain things that men do, that limits their options. And so they're more likely to simply focus on having families. Exactly. Yeah. And that the, the impact um, and um, Paul Hawken really covered this well in his book, Drawdown focusing on climate change solutions. The impact of investments in that education, uh, really uh, it's best made um, in adolescence uh, for women. And I I see it less as a factor of education and more, as you put it, a factor of gender equity. I think it it levels the playing field, giving women options, um, especially in patriarchal societies, and we have plenty of that in the United States, Um, and given options, uh, family planning becomes part of many options, uh, including career and other things that um, you can do to form a broad life. Uh, It's not something where men are driving the boat, um, and which I think has largely been the cause of population growth. It's largely patriarchal. Um, and not so great reasons for pushing for larger families. There was a story on CNN the other day about a family with with 13 or 14 kids who had finally uh, gotten the gender they wanted. Um, And I think we have to query whether 
that level of unsustainable family planning and the impact that it's having on the planet, literally threatening the lives and well-being of untold number of people in the future, just because we want a particular gender is something that we want our laws and policies to support. To me, that's morally insane. And uh, so, yeah, and, and yeah. we've got we've got a caller. Lisa is on hold. Lisa, what is your question or thought? Yes. Hi, everybody. Thank you for taking my call. I think it's important to pay attention to third world nations because the predominant view in third world nations amongst people that have multiple children is once, and we see the concept of practice of birth spacing. So once you can show a community that their children have a chance of growing up and surviving to adulthood, they will, in fact, have fewer children. When they have such high infant mortality and childhood mortality, they have more children because for these families, these children are their social security, quote unquote, that will take care of their parents in their older ages. So that's why they do that. So, yes, I agree with Jane. Education is paramount. And number two, public health practices to help ensure that these children can survive to adulthood is also the other major way. And this is this is a, a pretty common uh, philosophy in the field of public health. Thank you, Lisa. What are your thoughts on that, Carter? I think it raises a, a, a great question when we talk about regions that were really, uh, their fate was determined by, by colonial interventions. Um, and they are impoverished in, in many cases because uh, of policies that uh, enriched countries like the United States. A question I, I have is, do we owe children, future children, every one of them, a fair start in life uh, and fairness determined in particular communities? But I think that one question could be, we might be thinking in terms of numbers, an arc of population, but we could also think more um, qualitatively which would be what would, it, what would it look like to give every kid a fair start in life, to invest in children so that every one of them got what the Children's Rights Convention guaranteed. And I think in, in the most impoverished places in the world, that is the question we should be asking. It's not a question governments want to ask. They do not want to invest uh, that level of input in family planning, and they don't want to use equity as a guide mark. But I think if we did, I think if we did, and I think that's the only way to, to interpret the Children's Rights Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I think we could ask that question. What would it look like essentially to level the playing field for kids? And this isn't pie in the sky. There's, this is going to be a real policy debate. Um, well, maybe not so real because uh, the Democrats didn't do too well uh, in Congress, but better, more of a policy debate than it would have been under the idea of baby bonds. Baby bonds are guaranteed payments that you have for every child born, and you can place that money in trust. You can use it in, in more immediate investments. But the idea is that every every kid should have some kind of a trust fund, not just rich kids, not just uh, Donald Trump Jr. And so um, that is a mechanism by which we can actually think about every kid a fair start in life. And if you link that to family planning, um, I think the sky's the limit in terms of our impact. I, I don't really understand when you say um, you're going to link it to family planning. Can you explain it in people's terms? Yeah. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to give every kid a fair start in life, you most effectively do that by getting the buy-in of the parents before they actually have children. You could look into uh, investing that bond 
um, in different things that would maximize the benefit for the children. Could be educational systems, could be healthcare. Uh, and you can actually tailor family planning interventions around that. So if every, if you were in a community where the richest of the rich kids had access to the best healthcare and the poorest kids had no healthcare, um, you could design your family planning system so that every child would be enrolled in mandatory healthcare by essentially redistributing wealth from the top to those who are most impoverished. This is where the key conceptual change has to happen, Jane. Right now, that's impossible because we think of family planning as something that's personal or private, as if we were in our own little caves or bubbles when we decide to have kids. And when we do that, we think, I'm rich, I can pass all of that advantage and head start to my children, or I'm poor and they're being born 50 yards behind the start line, well, that's just the hand of God. We have to break that mentality and realize, no, you have to cooperate to give kids a fair start. And that means resource redistribution, doesn't mean socialism, because if you're giving kids a fair start in life, that's the beginning of a human rights system. That's what every kid deserves. Um, and you would redistribute resources along those lines, but you'd have to make people cooperate. They couldn't just pretend that they go off on their own to plan their families. They'd have to plan cooperatively to give kids a fair start. A couple of things. One, education, public education was supposed to be the great equalizer where everybody gets that same basic education. And I remember my dad saying that and he went to public school and he thought public schools were great. Uh, because he he was he was born in 1916, believe it or not, and uh, so for him his public schools were great, but uh, uh, the public schools are are really often not great, and they don't provide that equal um, playing field. So there's that, and then when you talk about redistribution or cooperation, again, I want to get back to that China one child yeah. policy. How did that work out? Where does that stand yeah. now? How does that fit into your vision? Sure. And I'll just address the education and then the, the policy. Um, you, it's a, it was meant to be the great equalizer. Um, I think that failure to link educational systems to family planning systems is a great explanation for why it failed. Uh, because you really would have to do equalizing, given that the greatest impact on child development happens from years zero to three. You would have to engage in the equalizing at that stage if you really wanted to have the greatest impact. Um, and we could think of redistribution simply through things like child tax credits. Right now, uh, if you're making over $100,000 a year, you still get a significant child tax credit of $2,000 for every child you have. You're making less than 50000 you get the same child tax credit. Why not lop off the credit for those making the most and use it to double the credit linked to family planning for those making the least to invest in early childhood development? So that, that, that's an example of trying to make education as the great equalizer actually work. China's policy had nothing to do with human rights. The PRC has long been a country that had disdain for human rights other than uh, uh, some of their economic policies, um, which are really more capitalist in nature, um, they, have, they have largely regarded human rights. And as part of that, the middle of the 20th century, um, the, the People's Republic had a 
strong pro-natalist policy, wanted to grow China, wanted to grow their eventual hegemony in the world, and it encouraged women to have as many children as possible. That policy in the middle of the 20th century created a massive population explosion. So that later, decades later, China underwent several and by the time uh, 1970s came, they had decided as an emergency measure would institute uh, a one-child policy. In fact, if you added all the provinces up, it was more like 1.7. The policy was a violation of human rights, but not, not necessarily because it encouraged smaller families, but because of the ways that it was forced um, uh, instead of using equalizing incentives of the sort of thing we've talked about. Uh, it was enforced through Dominion meth. Now, today, China has really moved away from that policy, and they are in a mode of encouraging in many situations women to have more children because they view uh, the demographic impact of that policy that threatens their economic growth model. Um, they're also set some of the gender impacts. Um, so I think it, it is not a great model for any kind of policy solution. It did in some, in many cases, violate human rights standards. But I think uh, a family planning policy that impacts the, uh, what family planning does to every child's future also violates human rights. There has to be something better than what we're doing now if we wanna actually comply with the Universal Declaration. So some of the questions on Facebook say, you know, there's actually a contrary correlation between income and family size, so that those with the large, largest income are, are more inclined to have smaller families, and those with lower income can have larger families. Again, this is generalizations. I don't know if there's any statistical truth to that, and I don't know if it's even relevant, but what are your thoughts on that? Because Obviously, giving a child a fair shot in life has a lot to do with the resources, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of there there is evidence of that, um, and a lot of the suppositions that world leaders and uh, the economists they were relying on made over the past twenty or thirty years was that as economic growth occurred and economies developed fertility rates would fall quickly enough to resolve what they viewed as the key population crises that they were addressing. In many cases, it was food shortages. Uh, it, it, the problem with that thinking, they did it happen quickly enough? Well, not if they factored in carbon emissions, which they did not. Uh, evidently, the, the models did not account for the climate crisis, or we would not be in it right now. Um, and we wouldn't be using the same modeling that would potentially allow world population uh, to reach 12, 13, 14 billion. The underlying model is flawed. Um, I, I also just disagree with the approach of, let's try to align people's economic incentives so they try to do the right thing. I mean, I think people are rational uh, agents. They can actually think through what would be a good cooperative policy without us trying to trick them through economic incentives to do certain things like have smaller families. And I think if we focused on the question of do, does every child deserve a fair start in life, level the playing field for kids, people would, would participate in a system like that without being tricked through economic incentives um, uh, to have smaller families or that we would simply rely on economic growth to, to reduce family size because 
it has not worked, uh, as I say, because we would not be in the middle of the ecological crises we are now if that system had worked. And going to a, a larger question, what do you make of the inability for extremely intelligent people to connect the dots between animal agriculture, which is really a blight on our society? It, it created the pandemic we're in. I mean, it, it was first spotted amongst those people who had visited a wet a retail slaughter market in China. SARS, similar situation. You have mad cow disease, avian flu. Now you've got the mink mutation um in denmark which now they're culling which is not they're slaughtering they're massacring 17 million mink um instead of saying well let's just stop mink okay nobody needs to wear mink their answer is biosecurity at mink farms um i honestly cannot wrap my head around the fact that you're seeing more and more articles creep up in the New York Times, for example, where um, they talked about, hey, it might not just be mink. There are other animals that are posing threats, potentially. That was an article, it was just in the New York Times. And um, also starting to slowly connect the dots in a previous article, these are all just in the last week, about food production and climate change. Uh, But yet, um, right on the main page, it's like, hey, turkey for Thanksgiving. I mean, it right. just, it, it's this this sense of entitlement, this arrogance. And also in the article about how uh, food production is being ignored, when they said food production, they're really talking about animal agriculture. Uh, food, animal agriculture is being ignored in the uh, pursuit of climate change mitigation. They The article states, uh, well, they never really studied what would happen if everybody went plant-based because they only want to study realistic options. In other words, they're taking the solution off the table. They're yeah. saying, we know that's the solution, but we're not even going to study it because we know in our minds that that's not going to happen when it, it very easily could happen. Right. Carter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to address that point and then also the, the pandemic point that you raised. Um I don't have any empirical evidence of this, but my my gut is that it goes back to the notion of personal privacy, uh, whether it's uh, how many children you have or the conditions in which you have them or what you're eating. We have a mispla- misplaced notion of what our impacts are. We have this idea that we're living in some sort of a bubble. It's almost like a cognitive dissonance that our species has. Um, and I think that's a lot of this uh, is probably been by the long shadow um, of World War II, where there was a decimation of population and this idea that there had to be a rebuilding. There was a significant uh, absence of uh, significant food shortages and nutrition. And this idea that we had to create a mechanized system of caloric production um, at all costs, that is the modern uh, beast of agriculture. It's hard to undo uh, from that time and the impacts of that time on our psyche. So I don't, I don't have, I don't have, uh, as I said, empirical evidence of that. But my sense is that it's this cognitive dissonance comes from recent history and from the the misplaced notion of home and hearth and the impact it has on the world. Um, that we can't forget animal agriculture, modern animal agricultural systems were designed to deal with human population growth. Every reference to the design, funding, expansion, 
of those systems and the need for them today, the reason they talk about them is to address human population. That's the fundamental driver. All the demand for all the products comes well, from I that. If that yeah. everybody was eating plants, yeah. literally you would immediately have an increase of at least 36%. Some say it's more like 50% of all food. You would yeah. hypothetically be able to end human world hunger. Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea that we're designing something to, it's like uh, when, when I confronted a foreign secretary from Australia about the live export trade, which is one of the most horrific things. They put thousands of animals on boats, half of them die. Um, and she said, well, we're supplying protein to the developing world and brushed me off and walked past me. It's like, wait a second, you could supply kale protein. You could supply a bean protein. You don't have to put these poor animals on a ship and let them sit in their own feces for, you know, until they die, half of them die or whatever, whatever the stats are. It's, it's a nightmare. So um, when we talk about, uh, well, it's all designed to meet the growth of human population. If, if, if it switched to plant-based, that would literally, it's like hitting the lottery. You double, you double your food. And, and I, and I think that's why we can do both. I think they're interrelated uh, there's the there are the people who will be consuming, and there's the question of what they are consuming, and I think the correlation, the tie together for both is empathy. Um, we want to make choices uh, that demonstrate our empathy for other species and the impact on the environment, and those choices can be from the way we plan our families, the conditions that we guarantee all children, um, and the impact that the sizes of our family has on 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 uh, the environment. And it can be through food choice. I think we could do both at the same time. And quite frankly, given the crisis that we face, I think we have to do both. Well, let me ask you about politics in the sense that religion, there's a, I mean, how do you see this, your theories, which I think have incredible validity, but I, I also see them coming up against, you know, yeah. tremendous opposition. Uh, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, we don't, we can't forget, uh, and the CDC has has great information on this, that the arc of population growth and its eventual decline is a great example of human development. Um, there's no rational voice that doesn't think that eventual population decline. Uh, that there's no rational person that thinks that that decline is a bad thing. Is something that will become sustainable human behavior. So how do we, question is how do we bend the arc? And I, I see, again, almost all rational people looking to accelerate our, our approach to the sustainable development goals. There is There are really, people, I mean, I don't want to get into religion. They always say at the dinner table, never discuss politics or religion. But there are religions, obviously, um, we all know, I don't need to elaborate that, uh, you know, it's a huge issue now. The Supreme Court, I mean, Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you're on solid ground among rational people if you're trying to promote the sustainable development goals. And sustainable family planning does that 
uh, to a greater impact than most other things. Although I'll give you dietary change is going to be key as part of that. I, I think we would fail future generations if we didn't pursue policy reforms that push the sustainable development goals, irrespective of their being controversial or pushback. And that means changing our diet in many cases, but it also means planting families so we leave room for animals and restore nature. Uh, because the more we bend the arc of that uh, of, of the growth uh, that we've experienced, the less risk we have of the catastrophic impacts. And if we care about kids, we care about the future they're gonna inhabit it, we'll, we'll wanna bend that arc more quickly. And it'll take diet, family planning, and other reforms, energy. Uh, you, you've talked about um, the growth um, happening in countries like India. I mean, are you approaching thought leaders in India and China as well? Is this discussion happening there? Well, it is. I mean, they're, they in many uh, places where uh, even, uh, in many places where there's growth that actually uh, is threat is reaching the level of threat that we've seen in the past, there is talk of, of policy reforms. Our point at the organization Having Kids is much more simple. It is the United Nations was charged with furthering the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One of those rights is the right to have children. Right now, that model is focused on what parents want. Instead, it should be focused on what all children need, things like the Children's Rights Convention. And if the UN were to change their modeling, um, that change would implement, could be implemented worldwide um, in a much more effective, uh, a much more effective manner than sporadic country by country reactions to uh, the threats that are caused by population growth. It's a matter of changing, uh, universally changing the mindset of what it means uh, to have a right to have children. It's a right that comes with an obligation to give future children a fair start. So we need the change to happen at the UN to cascade, cascade down through member states and not rely on individual member states to simply react to emergencies well after the fact, because that's not how you, do, you, you make progress. You have to think ahead, and that's going to mean the UN changing. So our, our key initiative is for the Secretary General of the United Nations to adopt child-centric uh, Fair Start Family Planning model as the correct interpretation of the, the universal right to have children. That would then have to be implemented by uh, member states through their existing planning systems. And, and as I said, how does this get done real world? You redistribute wealth from the top to encourage cooperation that gives the kid a fair start. If you do that, you not only bend the curve uh, in, in the quickest way possible, but you also invest in future, invest in future children. And that's the should be the goal of family planning. Wow. Well, a lot to process. I think you are so brilliant. Carter Dillard, it's such an honor to have you here. Um, you really think big picture, and I really do urge you to get in touch with Dr. Silas Rao of Climate Healers, uh, who is based in Mesa, Arizona. It's climatehealers.org. He's just written a white paper that um, he's willing to debate anyone. He makes the assertion that animal agriculture is responsible for 87% of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, um, they've been changing that calculation over and over again. You know, uh, at one point, somebody had said 51%, then they drop it down to 14%. Then it was before that 18%. 
But um, the New York Times said something like 30%, I guess, recently. But uh, if it is 87%, wow. And I think it dovetails perfectly with your work. Uh, so I hope you guys, uh, both of whom are, you're both in Arizona, that you can collaborate somehow. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Carter Diller. You're absolutely amazing. Best of luck with all of your, I don't know how you do it all, all of your many projects. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. And I'm going to stop the live stream. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week. 